Thomas Green here with Ethical Marketing Service. On the podcast today, we have Brandon White. Brandon, welcome. Hey, thanks a lot, Thomas. It's uh, afternoon there in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, getting towards the end of the working day now. Right on. Well, I'm just starting trying to. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. Would you like to take a moment and tell the audience a little bit about (laughs) yourself and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the best way to describe me is I'm just an entrepreneur. I say just, right? You and I both know how hard that is. But um, I started my career in 1996. Uh, that I'm counting. I'm not counting the lemon lemonade stand because I think most people do that. So I'm moving forward to when I was in my early 20s. But started my first company, which became the largest social networking and e-commerce site on the internet. And through a interesting journey of bootstrapping, raising money and then buying it back from the investors after the internet crash, which some listeners may or may not remember happened in 2001. I uh, ran it as a really good cash flow business and then eventually sold it to a media company. Um, and from there, I had an interesting journey. I was an early person. What I really did is when I bought the company back, I automated most of it and I was running it as a side hustle, quite candidly. Um, I had a plan at the end to sell it, which took me about on a five-year plan to do that. And I went back towards the end full-time. But in between there, I was an original uh, early guy, I say, at America Online. I was a venture capitalist working for two venture firms, uh, investing mainly in the internet, security, and enterprise software. And and then I started uh, several other companies, not all that went well. Um, But I've had two exits so far. Currently, I'm an angel investor. I live in Half Moon Bay, California, which is on the peninsula that I think Silicon Valley has expanded. It used to, the proper Silicon Valley used to be San Jose, but with companies moving all along the San Francisco peninsula, I think anything on the peninsula is called Silicon Valley. So um, we get to look at the ocean while still having the advantage of, of being in this tech mecca. Uh, I do angel investing. I have a newsletter that I actually, a print newsletter, if you can believe that, that goes out once a month called Build a Business Success Secrets that is only available in print. You can't get anything, but it's designed for entrepreneurs who want to get the most out of their time, talent, and ideas. And um, I actually have a few other companies. I'm working on a SaaS company that software as a service company that helps you find files you know you have on your computer or drives but can't find. I think most of us have had that problem. Uh, I got tired of wasting time and me and another founder did that. And then um, I have a security company that does cyber and actual physical security for companies looking um, to fortify whatever they have, whether that's a corporation or a plant or a school. So that's what we've been doing. And um, I ride bikes a lot and hang out with my wife. So you got a lot going on. There's one thing which I immediately wanted to pick up on, and that was, did you, am I right in saying that you said that you sold the same company twice? Uh, well, what I did was, so I've sold two companies, and I effectively, on the first one, um, let's call it, I think there's this thing, new thing called like restart or something, like re-entrepreneur, I don't know. But um I had started this company and then I bought it back from the investors actually myself. So I bought the company that I, I really bought the assets, Thomas, candidly, but 
Um, and then I restarted it and then eventually sold it to a large media company in Canada. Uh, that seemed like a very savvy move. Does that, is, is that an appropriate description of it? Well, in hindsight, Thomas, it is savvy because it got me my house that I'm talking to you from Half Moon Bay paid off a lot of debt and a lot of other things. Um, some people called me dumb at the time. Some called me stubborn, crazy, and a bunch of other things. But candidly, I really, for whatever reason, believed that the internet was go not going to go away. And in 2001, there was believe it or not, and, and you probably remember, there were a lot of questions whether this internet thing was actually going to be feasible. And, and feasible meaning not that the internet was going to go away, but could you really build a business online? And most, the answer was, was that there was some successful businesses happening. What I believed at the time was that we got ourselves into trouble because we grew to, we, we raised money, um, which at the time, looking back on it, I believe that money was going to solve the problem. Um, money covers up problems and it in many ways stifles your creativity. It can. I'm not saying that there's time in a company's life cycle when you absolutely need capital and you need to pour gas on the fire because then that, and, and that point is when you're going to scale. Meaning, um, you, I could tell you our exact process, and if you're half a decent salesperson or, or online marketer online to build, I think we now call them funnels, I, I call it a process, to get the sale, uh, until you figure that out, you know, it's not time to raise money, and, and a lot of companies raise money too early before they figure that out, and I think in our case, uh, we we probably raised money a little bit too early, but didn't have the choice if we were going to go down that route because of the way the internet.com craze at that time from 98 really up until the crash of 2001 was just wildfire. And um, I realized that this could be a profitable business, the, the, the online world could be a profitable business with the business model. I find it very ironic, Thomas, I don't know about you, but everybody's like, oh, you need membership and you need all these things. Well, we were doing membership. Uh, we had three revenue streams. We were doing membership with a forum, believe it or not. We, we had a third from membership, a third from advertising, and a third from e-commerce. And at the time, <clears throat> not everybody believed that, that that was possible. And what I thought was one, I think I was candidly Thomas angry. Uh, I was angry that the market crashed. I was angry that we made mistakes and I didn't want to give up, uh, whether that's pride, stupidity, uh, ego, um, but a belief that the internet really had the opportunity because I was a kid sitting on the Eastern shore of Maryland, which for anybody out there is like, it's a very gorgeous place, but it's nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it's like um, it's like being in just in the middle of nowhere, but with a modem at the time and a computer was able to reach the entire world. And, you know, I just thought that that was incredible. And if you could figure out how to gain, get more people uh, at a low cost, that that business could work. So 
I, um, we had to shut down. We let everybody go and I bought it back. And within a few months, I'm, I'm thinking back how long it was, but it wasn't long time as, uh, until we were running a profitable, profitable venture. So, um, you know, I think, and, and look, I made a bet that was right. I mean, we were podcasting in 1998, mainly because I didn't want to write 3000 word fishing report articles every month. And I was like, well, if I could just record this, uh, and I actually recorded it. We did do video, believe it or not, back then. For those who remember 14, 20, or four, what is it? 14 bot and then 56K modem or whatever we had. Um, but we were able to get audio on the internet. It wasn't called podcasting. It was really just an audio file that we put up on a flat file HTML site and said, click this thing and it would play in the browser um, or they could download it and play it. And uh, we were just doing these things. And I was so amazed that I was always a computer geek. I started on a Commodore VIC-20 and then I think I upgraded to a Commodore 64. But the, you know, the ability to do that from your house, Thomas, and, and market um, was just, I just felt like it was the Wild West. And, it, and, and it, everybody was equal, even Amazon at that mm -hmm. time. Um, you know, it was, an, it was a level playing field. Furthermore, there weren't that many people on the internet, candidly. Well, um, really interesting story. I, I feel like I could actually speak to you about this whole episode about just the concept of your story, because I'm sure there's tons of learnings there. But um, are you happy to speak about how to sell a business today? Well, sure. I'm, uh, I'd love to talk about that. I, I think that I, you and I were talking beforehand a little bit um, yesterday and uh, via email, and I, I agree with you. You had said something that I think is really important is you know, a lot of people don't, they, that's the dream, right? Like, oh, I'm going to sell the business, Thomas. And, and and then you just throw that out there and you have no idea what that means, nor is there a strategy to do it. And I think there's uh, some negative connotations around selling a business that don't need to be there. I think um, if you want to run a business forever, I think that's great. I think you know, that's great. I think for other people who want to get an exit so that they can do other things in their lives, I think that's great too. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that you have to take care of your employees and the people that have worked really hard and make sure that you do the very best for them. But uh, I don't think there should be a negative connotation uh, I do want to say this because I was really thinking about it. I was thinking about this morning when I was drinking tea. I think it's important for entrepreneurs out there listening or marketers, anybody who's listening out there that you don't build a company to sell it. Let me say this. You don't build a company to flip it. And, and here's what I mean by that. If you build a company with the idea that you're just going to flip it, then you likely will not build a very strong foundation. And I think um, in, in, I get to say this after two decades of being an entrepreneur is if you build something that solves a problem for people and you are so good at it and people, and when I say solve a problem for people, 
They need to pay you for that problem to solve that problem. And if they do that, whether you're you're doing online marketing campaigns for them, whether you're running social media, whether you're selling this mug, um, whether you're building software, once you've proved that and you have a repeatable process with a good culture, the good culture means a lot of different things depending on what that industry is and what the personality of the leader is, not good or bad. But if you have that, Thomas, I believe someone comes and wants to buy you. Of course, like if you have like a cool thing and I see it, you have a cool podcast, which you do, I'm going to listen to it. And then somebody's going to want to incorporate that into something bigger or something like that. So I just wanted to say that because I think um, sometimes business owners and entrepreneurs chase a flip. And what happens is uh, you can't see this because I have a, a sweatshirt on this morning. It's a little chilly here in Happening Bay, but you can't see it. But I got like 50 scars on my back from learning these lessons that there will be things to, that can happen. Uh, one of my board members of Worldwide Angler, which is the fishing company, which later became Titlefish, said to me, he was an original guy from America Online. He was like a really er earlier than I was. Um, he did a company called Vertical Scope, which was, I think Microsoft invested a hundred million and, and they went public. Um, really successful guy. And he said to me, Brandon, you know, it wasn't, you have a good idea. It was one of the things that led me, one of multiple things that led me to buy the company back. But he said, you have a great idea. Like this, this model works. It just, the market crashed of which you have no control. And if you buy something to flip and you get caught in a market or this COVID craziness or whatever it is, right? This is repeated through history. It's unrecoverable because you have no strong foundation. So I just throw that uh, warning shot across the bow to anybody. And I'm sure Thomas, somebody will write in, say, well, I did it. That guy, Brandon, you had on, you know, I did it. Um, awesome, man. It's hard to repeat. And that's a hard model to bet on. Um, when you've got your you know, whole life and your whole net worth uh, on the line. So thank you for letting me say that because I just think it's important for people to hear. No, I 100% I agree. And um, it made me think of like causes produce effects. So if the, um, if the cause that you've provided is like a, an amazing business, which has real value, then the effect will be that someone will want to buy it. Whereas if you're just trying to sell to the next person, higher than what you bought it for then that's kind of high risk is that a, a good summary yeah, of what I, you said yeah i'm not saying that you can't do it right um but i just think the risk if that's if that's what you're doing and i think that's um i think that's a different type of entrepreneur it's not good or bad it's just a very transactional um i tend to be an entrepreneur i don't tend i am an entrepreneur who wants to solve problems for people. And, and while the, the money is, I do like money. And I think there's this whole dialogue going on that people who make money is bad. And, you know, you think about these mindsets of there's this guilt to make money. I think, I think making money is great. I think you should make as much money as you can. Um, but the reason that I wanted to make money and I still want to make money has nothing to do with the physical things. In fact, I'm try I tried to get rid of things. We 
when we bought our house in Half Moon Bay, we didn't have any pictures on the wall for like three years. My wife was going crazy, but I was like, I just don't want any more stuff. Like, I don't need the stuff. Um, I don't want stuff. It's a burden to have to monitor and maintain and do all this stuff. Um, what I really wanted the money for and still do to this day is to buy my time and, you know, own my own time and decide what I want to do with that time because I have the means. The money is just a means to do that. But um, I think I think the transactional part, you can make a lot of money, um, but it doesn't bring me at least the satisfaction of having someone write and say, oh my God, Brandon, you've changed my life. Um, you know, your, your newsletter that I get every month gives me these ideas and it inspires me and here's what it led me to build. That's really what I get a lot of satisfaction from. Now, if they pay me for that because they solve some problem for them, then that's awesome because we can't do it for free. But um, I just think that it's just really high risk. And like I said, it, it's, um, I think more entrepreneurs tend to be creators, if that's the right word for people who, you know, really want to solve problems for people. Hmm. It, it somewhat covers what my first or my opening would be regarding the process of um, selling a company, and that is um, preparation to sell. So I'm sure there's tons of things which um, you would need to do in order to prepare before just, I'm just going to go out and sell my business now. Um, and part of that is what you've already alluded to. But what would be your best advice around the, the best prep someone can do before even going through the process of selling their business? So, you know, I will tell you that I purposely decided five years prior to selling it, and it was almost to the T, it was about, four, I made it a little bit before that timeline. Um, it was four and a half years. I had no buyers necessarily. I mean, we all have these targets, right? We build these companies we're like, oh, Microsoft will buy us or Amazon will buy us, Netflix is going to buy us or uh, what, whatever that is. But I built a business plan, a very purposeful business plan to get my business in order. And I'll go out on a limb and say that most companies who are under 50 million, even actually post 50 million, but in revenue are somewhat a mess from a corporate structure because you're running so fast when you're building these. And, and it, you know, I'm, I'm talking about entrepreneurs who really started these companies and then go through there. There's just, I mean, you know, this, there's just things that get missed. There's accounting, there's documents, there's uh, agreements, all of these things you absolutely have to have in order. What I learned to do now, and it's in my closet, which you can't see right now, but is next to me is, is I build very large binders that have tabs with, and you could do this electronically as well, but um, still to, in this today, a lot of people like paper, is every document, license, agreement, um, if you build software and you've used snippets of code in your open source, you need to have all the licenses documented. Uh, when we went through this for a software company that I was a part of, I think we had 300 and plus license agreements that we had to put together based on open source software that had different rules because if you buy it, 
the owner, the new owner wants to know all that. So I think the first thing is decide that, hey, I'm in a place in my entrepreneur journey that I want to sell this and put together a business plan of what that means and including targeted potential buyers. And don't just pick the big ones because in order to sell your company for a certain amount of money, especially in public, a big public company, it has to go through a board approval. So it's not this, you know, what we hear in the headlines of TechCrunch and if you're techie or you read whatever other, uh, the Guardian, whatever these publications are out there that publish somebody got bought, it's not simple. It has to go through an entire process. You have to have a sponsor within the company who is an advocate for you. You have to understand that advocate's position within that organization to sell it. And then ultimately, it'll go to a CEO. If you're dealing directly with the other CEO, that's great. Uh, if it's a small non-public business, then you probably don't have a, a issue necessarily with board, but even a CEO of a decent sized business is going to go to their board with it. And then the board's going to ask 50 questions. So start to understand this and start to understand who those people are and start to market to them because you can market to them and start to drive awareness about your business and have a strategy that brings you to light within them. And you may do this three years out, which is actually what I did because I picked some companies that I thought were going to do a roll-up or looked to do a roll-up and were going to need a roll-up. So, and I purposely, not every day, but regularly would make sure that the people, that people within that organization saw what we were doing. So, but you got to build this strategy um, and then start to get all of your paperwork, all of your documents, all of your agreements, uh, all of your processes. They're going to want to know your sales process. They're going to, if you have any component of digital, they're going to want to know all your stats. They're going to want to know bounce rates. They're going to want to know if you're a uh, subscription business, what your churn is. They're going to know, want to know what your ARPU is. They're going to know what your customer acquisition costs are. They're going to know what your margins are on a contribution basis. They're going to want to know your infrastructure that you're on. Are you on an Amazon cloud? Are you on a Microsoft cloud? Are you on uh, Google cloud? Uh, where are you? How is that hosted? What is the software license that drives all that? If you have a product, do you have a warehouse? If you have a warehouse or an office, what is your lease? I got caught on um, on, uh, on the second company that I sold, which, which wasn't as Oh, it wasn't a windfall. It was really just a, a save, candidly. But the uh, lease actually said that we couldn't turn over the lease without the landlord's approval. So now what you have is a landlord who could actually kill your deal. And that's crazy. It, I thought it was crazy. Now, I, I'm not beating up on the landlord. I understand from a landlord perspective that they want to check the new owner's credit and a hundred other things because it puts them at risk. What I'm saying is, is that you have to go through every single one of these contracts. I had a, an agreement. Another example is I had an agreement with a advertising network that guaranteed us a certain CPM that I negotiated. And it also said 
that it was non-transferable without approval. So now I have to go manage that and get them to sign off, which we did. But all of these little things, you just got to start to make a list and start to inventory. And this, this goes down, you may have employee agreements. You may have an employee handbook. If you have an employee handbook, you need to understand the laws. In the UK, they're different than the US. What if a UK company is building, buying a US or vice versa? You've got to understand how all these things transfer. Um, understand where you are in your taxes. Because if there's tax liability, they're going to want to know that. You got to get start to get your financials in order. If you're using QuickBooks, that's fine. But uh, in my experience, when you run fast, you don't always categorize everything because you're just running fast. You don't have account numbers for every single item that you're doing. Um, if you're a services business, you need to make sure that you have uh, government, quote unquote, wherever, whatever country you're in, approved time accounting processes. That becomes a liability for that company if they're buying you. In my case, it was all online and really dealt around all the contracts that we had um, with advertisers, software, um, all of our tax. Oh, you're gonna have to have all your tax returns, all of them, every single tax return. So when you start prepping, this is the stuff you have want to have together. And here's why, because when someone, and this is the lesson that I learned, which if somebody came to buy any of our businesses, which they're not for sale, and, I, and I'm not looking to sell any, but if they did, I literally have a binder in there that I can plop down and say, here you go. And you want to have that because speed and momentum in these deals when you are selling a company matter. Because your sponsor could, I don't, I don't know, have a catastrophic event, decide that they don't like their boss and quit. And now you're at zero in these places. You could literally be at zero in this sales process. Um, and you, when you have velocity in a deal, you want to, you, you don't want to say, oh, well, thank you, Thomas. Really, thank you. I know you're interested. Hey, could you give me eight weeks to get this together? Like in eight weeks, you're going to go figure another company out, forget about this, or you're going to judge that the company isn't quite up as up to par as you thought. So, you want to be able to act fast. So, you start getting all of this together. Uh, I would suggest any business do this within a few years. You know, every five years, go back and say, hey, we need to get all this organized or have a really smart person working for you that's organized and can, can do this along the way for you. And then if you're targeting someone, great, but be prepared, you know, because of that velocity. I think that's a really important uh, point because something happens with your sponsor or, or the market or something like that. And you miss that opportunity. I mean, I know I have a lot of colleagues who have had, you know, bad stories of, oh, well then this happened or, you know, an earthquake happened or, I mean, you know, you, you laugh at that stuff, but it has effects. So when you have somebody who wants to pay you money for your company, you want to be, be ready. So, so have that plan. Um, and, Selling your company will be extremely time-consuming and distracting to your business. So if someone wants to come and buy your company, make sure that you get a signed term sheet fast. If you do not have a signed term sheet 
or MOU, it's all talk. And, and you will disrupt your business and potentially hurt your business because of the time it takes. It's pretty much a full-time job to sell your company. Um, you know, there's lawyers involved. There's these purchase agreements. There's, uh, there's negotiations because likely, likely, they will want you to come on for some period of time for transition, which means that you now have to negotiate an employment contract. And you need to make sure that employment contract's right. And your employees, if they don't transfer, how is that going to work? And and how are you going to have to negotiate for them? So I know that was a fire hose of stuff, but you've brought back memories of... Um, Good times, all worth it. When you see that money wired into your bank account, which is a pretty satisfying feeling, but it's a bittersweet moment to be candid. But um, it is it, it shows your hard work, uh, but you can be sad about it. So be careful before you sell your company too, because as soon as you sell your company the next day, you're you're not like the important person anymore. And and, and entrepreneurs have egos. Um, and anybody who's like, oh, well, I'm just, entrepreneurs don't do that. Yes, we do. You know how hard this is? You know how many people say no along the journey? You know how many people say that's not possible? It, it's not probable. Uh, you're wasting your time. Like if, if you don't have some level of resilience and ego, uh, you'll be crushed on day one. Well, actually, I was, this is not what I said beforehand, <laughs> but I was going to say to you, um, if this is an episode where, I'm just sitting and listening. I'm absolutely fine with that because um, I can admit to it being, especially with your description of everything, I can admit to it being an area of almost ignorance for me. So I'm more than happy to just sit and listen to your experience. So thank you for your answer so far. Yeah, sorry for going on. It just like comes out of me just naturally <laughs> from all these memories you, you invoked when we started talking. Well, I'm hoping at the end of the episode, it's not going to be like some emotional <laughs> roller coaster for you. You're not going to be wiped out from talking about this. But um, you touched upon a couple of things, which um, is the, the next question, which I was going to ask, which is finding a buyer. So how, how did that go for you? And what would you recommend someone do if gen, general advice, if they were to want to find a buyer? I'm going to go back to what I said, and probably the listeners aren't going to like this. Um, but I didn't find the buyer. I targeted buyers over the years, but the buyer eventually just came because I had built such a strong business and moat around our business in the region. We were, you know, as a media company, we, in the fishing space, sport fishing, we owned a very specific region. And my goal was to entrench ourselves that no competitor could come in without spending an enormous amount of money, which would be a buy versus build decision for somebody, whoever that was. And that, that was strategically done. Um, when I bought the company back, it was called Worldwide Angler and we covered the entire United States and seven international destinations, including the UK. And uh, Martin, actually, good friend from the UK, Martin James, who had a he still may have a radio show on the BBC, but I wiped all that out, Thomas, and went back and was very focused. So find your buyer by being so good 
that some bigger company has to buy you if they want that market. And, and, that, and that goes, that's, that's everything. Services, you know, this isn't a, a product, an internet site, a physical product. Um, it, it, it's everything. You know, you could, you could be, I was just talking to a friend the other day. I'm just throwing this out, out as an example, Thomas, because I, I don't want anybody to think that this doesn't apply across the board. And I think you would agree people will tend to say, well, that's just a tech thing. It's not a tech thing. Uh, my good friend's wife is a vet. And it, if you build the best vet practice, someone will want to buy it. In fact, that's what happens all the time. And so just be so good at what you do and take all of your energy to do that. And I would suggest a buyer will come to you, which they did for me. Having said that, if you want to target buyers, then I would say that you should just pick up the, first of all, be so good that you have a defensible thing. Two, understand the person you're going to cause business extremely well, meaning that you could get on the phone and say, hey, I understand that you're doing this, or it looks like your strategy is doing this. And just pick up the phone and call the CEO. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's who you ultimately want to talk to anyway. Now, if it's a big public company, then find someone who's, you know, pretty senior or, or, or vet them to do that. That's how, that's my style. There's another style. I worked for a venture capital firm that had an investment bank that sold one of the, is one of the top investment banks for a small to medium size mid-tier enterprise software companies and sold them. So you can get an investment banker or a business broker. There's a difference in my mind between an investment banker sells businesses and a business broker. A business broker tends to be um, just a, a little bit different style and maybe different focus, but you can hire them. And what they will require is a monthly retainer and a some portion of the proceeds. And this can be worth it, absolutely worth it, because they can get you more money because that's what they do for a profession. It's very much like a real estate agent. You can sell your house yourself, um, or you can pay the percentage and have a professional who knows how to position your house and how, whatever they do, stage it, they do all this stuff. Um, tell you what to do to to earn you more money. So those are, uh, I think, uh, three options really that um, you could do to sell your business. But do not be scared to pick up the phone and call. Having said that, if you are going to do that, you should get an advisor and understand the valuation of your company and understand what it's worth. You can come up with this stuff yourself. You can build comparables. Comparables, you can go to public companies. I use Yahoo Finance. You can see how much revenue they have. You can see what they trade at from a sales uh, multiple perspective and then build them yourself. And I highly recommend that if you are going to do that, that you do that. This is the type of stuff that an investment banker will do for you so that they can say, well, here's why this company is worth that. And they build all these comps. And I used to be the nerd who has an MBA, who spreadsheet chunky, who had to do that. 
Um, but those are some options of of how to, you know, actually sell the business. Um, if you're gonna, if you once you've decided that that's the route you're gonna take. Thank you for that. Um, if let's say uh, you pick one of those three, and um, let's say you get a potential buyer for your business. What does the negotiation look like and what would you share regarding your experience um, in, in that particular topic? Well, I tend to be a straightforward, not waste time guy. So at the end of the day, depending on your values and what's important to you, the, it likely comes down to price. So I want to have a price discussion up front because if we are significantly off on price, I'm going to walk. And the reason is because I'm going to, in order to go through this process, I'm going to be taking time away from growing my business. So, you know, and some people don't like what I just said. Um, they don't like it because they want to get to know you, Thomas, and they want to do that. But isn't that all just getting to the price anyway and trying to understand where your right left limit is and trying to understand where your head is? Let's just, I tend to just say, let's just be honest about what we're doing here. I mean, it's a transaction at the end of the day. So I, I want to get, and that's why I had suggested that you get a term sheet because that term sheet's going to spell out their price. Now they're going to say 10 things to you. Well, we really need this to come up with a price and this, that, and the other. Well, I'm not sure about that uh, because if you know my revenue, you know my profitability, you probably know where I sit in the market or, or the, your, this company, whoever, whoever's doing it, sits in the market. There's comparables out there that, that we know what the price range is. So are you going to be at the bottom of that price range or are you going to be at the top of that price range? Uh, or in the middle, and are you okay with that? So be per, be prepared for that. Also be prepared for this. People who, this is blinding flag of the obvious, but worth saying because I think some entrepreneurs don't realize what happened because they get, uh, they see the pot, what they believe is a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is you get these inbound calls that say, hey, Thomas, I'm interested in your business. And what they're really interested in is finding out about your business because you're a potential competitor and they want all your metrics. And then they'll say, oh man, sorry. So uh, I'm going to get to that really quickly. And I'm going to, and, and, and getting to that quickly is knowing the questions. Who are you? Where do you sit in the organization? And what is your process to get this, to get our company acquired by you? Show me every step. And tell me all the important people that are involved in your process that we need to convince. And then you'll know if they're serious. Because if they can't answer that question, they're just doing whatever. They may be doing it just to get a good checkbox on their quarterly review to say that they reached out to X amount of companies. VCs do this all the time. VC associates, that's what they get measured on. How many, how many people? they? I, I know that. I sat there. So be careful for mistaking a potential sale for somebody just checking off the box in their thing or trying to find out about your business. Well, it's um, something I didn't have on my list, but um, I am aware that that type of um, 
scenario exists where they pretend that they're interested in your business only to you know get the information so thanks for adding that regarding the valuation presumably it's a you're getting it valued by a professional um, external valuer um, what's the process around that and the time frame and how important is that would you say I think it's important to do, and um, actually in the United States, at least it might be true in the UK from an SEC perspective, Securities Exchange Commission and, and comparable in the UK. If you have investors, you're required to, to get an evaluation. Uh, and there's companies out there now that will manage your, your uh, cap table and all of these things for you. But I think it's really important to have from a third-party perspective so that you have validation and you have backup to why you believe your company is worth that. Uh, the process actually isn't terribly hard other than the pain that you'll feel when you have to pull out your credit card and pay them for it, um, which, you know, can it can be costly. You know, it can cost anywhere from $2,000 to $50,000, depending on how big your company and how complex it is. But you can run some of these numbers yourself, as I indicated, by building the comparables yourself, by just looking at public companies and doing that. They're just going to do that much more extensively. They're, they're going to have databases that they pull private transactions that you may not necessarily have access to. So I encourage everybody uh, to do that. But be be serious that you are going to sell your company because you are going to, it is going to cost you money to do that. It's simple, but it's expensive. Yeah, it can be expensive. Um, these these services out there now that will manage your cap table, uh, the one in, is I actually used, they will do it for you on a yearly basis, actually, because the investors need that for their to report back to their to their limited partners if you have a VC firm or something like that. So you know, it might only cost you two or three thousand dollars depending on the size, but you know, it's a cost and it's worth it though because now it's a third party, not you. Well, I think it's worth this, Thomas. And you're like, well, I think it's not. And now you're, now where are you? So when do the lawyers come in? Oh man. Well, uh, I would bring, you do not want to make a mistake. And there's a lot of bad, sad, I say bad, they're really sad stories of entrepreneurs, I would bring my attorney in early. Um, all to, I would bring my turn, attorney in when I've had a few conversations. They've, they've indicated the interest. I would be communicating with my lawyer that this is coming and I get my lawyer involved in the term sheet at that point, which is a uh, for listeners out there don't know or MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, that basically says, we're not committing, but we are saying that this is the price if you meet all of these requirements that we're going to go through in our diligence process. Uh, I would get my lawyer involved there because there can be some tricky terms that that you don't want to get stuck with. So um, once you once you have serious interest, I, I hate to waste money on lawyers. Not not that they're a waste, but that they come in early and you've spend a bunch of money too early. But once you have a good understanding that this is going to be a serious deal and you're negotiating your term sheet, you you want your lawyer involved. 
And have you got anything to add about the process of signing contracts? Uh, you mean uh, when they buy you? Uh, yeah, and also kind of anything to look out for that someone that has never done it before might not know. Yeah, you want you want to really understand your earnout if that is. If it's all cash, God bless you. Uh, I managed to negotiate all cash and they actually told me they didn't even want me around. I, I suggested that they might want me around because of the transition, but they didn't. So I was, okay, man, it's yours. Um, but if you have an earnout, you want to understand that. And you, if they do want you, which many companies will want you for a transition, you want your lawyer to negotiate, help negotiate your employment contract. And you want an employment contract. Uh, that would be a gotcha for anybody listening out there. You, because if they're like, oh, well, no, you don't need a employment contract, then likely they can fire you at will. And now if you had an earnout, they just erase that. And you don't want that. So you, if they want you to come on board, you want an employment agreement or a contract, whatever you want, whatever the right wording is, wherever you're listening to this, whatever country, you, you want that in place. Because um, they could, I'm not saying that everybody does this, but there are evil people out there that architect these things that appears that you're getting so much money because you have this earnout process and then they just fire you and they can't get it. So you want your lawyer involved in all of that legalese that's spelled out in the multiple pages to make sure that you get what you're promised. This um, next one might be, um, I, don't know, I don't know whether it really um, addresses your expertise because I think there's lots of things that I could talk to you about. It's a simple one is what I'm trying to say. But um, the, the bank account side of things, how, how do you go from you know, having almost full control of your business bank account to essentially giving it to someone else? What does that look like? Uh, well, that process is is actually really simple from a transaction standpoint. It's simply uh, some paperwork that says that so-and-so bought your business and and they are now entitled to be the signature person and the whoever is entitled to make changes to this account and effectively own it. Uh, emotionally, well, that's a different discussion. This is actually my last question. So we've got spoilers there a little bit regarding um, how did it feel emotionally. Um, have you got anything before we move to that question on the actual funds transfer? How long did it take you to get to your money? When did it happen? How did it feel? So I put, uh, it took an instant to happen via a wire. Um, but what I did, so and what I would suggest, I paid for an escrow process, uh, service because a lot of times the acquiring party wants to get control of the assets before they necessarily pay you the money, but you don't want to give them the assets until you've got the money. So you can put the money in escrow. And that's a third party who will hold that money and and be the traffic cop, for lack of a better word, and says, here's exactly what, what Brandon promised you. Um, and they release the money, not, not the other company. It does cost, I, I forget how much I paid Thomas. I might've paid, it was maybe one or 2% of the total. And, it, and, and that added up to a lot of money. 
but it was worth it to me, not because I didn't trust them, but because I understood that once I transferred these things, especially my domain, like that was in my case, if you own the domain, you like, you have my business and you have hundreds of thousands of people instantly coming to your, to that domain address is what we had. Um, hundreds of thousands a month. So, you know, to me, I was just so leery. I'd worked so hard and it was really painful for me to pay the escrow, but it was worth it. And, you know, I'm not saying, I'm recommending that if, if you have a transaction where that is the case, that's something like that you use an escrow account. Um, I'm not saying that you can't do it without it. I would have saved money, but uh, I do remember where I was when it happened and I had fulfilled the last piece, which the, the very last piece I let go was the domain name control. Like I didn't even care about the bank account, Thomas. Like I, I'll go get more, you know, if I had the domain, I could make more money. That was simple. Um, but once you had that, so it was the last thing I let it go that morning and they're like, okay, the money's coming. Uh, and I, I said, so it's a wire and it was a wire, which is generally pretty instant. You can get it done the same day. They were prepared for it. And I kept hitting return, enter, return on my keyboard. And I was like, it's not there. And I, I was like, it's coming. I said, well, you're not getting off the phone until I see this in my bank account because I literally just gave control to that company and you released it. I want to see that money. And I kept hitting return. And, it, and I remember, I, I don't want to say it was a small panic. But um, there was a lot of anxiety around that. Um, so if you have that, expect it. You know, some people may go into it calm and that's fine. But for me, I had worked so hard. And as an entrepreneur to have a moment where you get an exit, which is like this badge of honor, so to speak, in many ways, and, and, and not externally for me, but if you think about my journey here, it was you know, it was vindication. Like I told you so, you know, I bought that thing back. People said that it wasn't going to work. I should just move on or do whatever. And, you know, that transaction changed my entire life forever. You know, I mean, I was in student debt. I, I'm, I don't want to suggest that my wife and I weren't suffering. We, we weren't suffering. Uh, you know, we lived in a little small house in Maryland and we loved our life and it was great, but we did have aspirations. And my dream was always to move to California. And, you know, that's a Northern California Silicon Valley. And that's a really hard dream because houses here are really expensive, <laughs> um, ridiculously expensive, quite candidly. But, you know, my dream was to live on the water and be near the ocean and to be in Silicon Valley. And that was going to take a minimum of seven figures just to buy your house, much less anything else. So for me, it was, um, you know, it was a, it, it was a moment of victory. Well, congratulations then. Well, thanks. It was anticlimactic though, because then you're sad the next day. Well, that was the, that was the follow-up. <laughs> so that was the last question. How did it feel emotionally? So I, I can imagine it being complete, opposites in the sense that you get a feeling feeling of accomplishment but then what do you do the next day so again that's a follow-up what did you do the next day after you sold your business 
Um, well, first I realized, as, as as you know, as a CEO and, and founder, you always have this attention on you, right? Every even even the people that work for you, you're the center of attention. You're that person. In my case, I had hundreds of thousands of people who looked as me at this looked at me as this really cool fisherman who started this effectively a blog in the beginning uh, that turned into a social network and e-commerce site. And the next day you're like, you know, one minute you can reach hundreds of thousands of people with a push of a button and they'll open your email or open your post. And, and you don't necessarily lose that, but the shine certainly comes off of it and you're not that person. But candidly, the next day, I was already looking for a house. We sold the company on Wednesday and I bought it this house on Friday. No waste I mean, any time. No, because that was my goal. Like I had, you know, the goal was to get an exit so that we could get money to pay off all of our debt, candidly, and, and buy a house in California and get to California. And from a kid growing up on the East Coast of the United States of America, who was a, a Maryland um, kid, California is a really long way away to, to, to try to get there, not just from 3,000 miles, but from just the economics of, of doing it. So um, I wasted no time. Uh, we bought the house. My wife didn't even see the house. She, when she drove here from, she's originally from California, from the Southern California, but when she drove here, when we drove across the country, and she pulled into this driveway. She had never seen the house. Um, but she always said that, you know, after you've been together with someone for 24 years, she's like, you're way more picky than I am. So <laughs> I knew it was going to be fine. She knew, yeah. Is there anything that you think I should have asked you about the process of selling your business? Um, I don't think so, Thomas. I think you've you've covered, I mean, you and I, we could dive down into all the nitty gritty paperwork and things like that. I think we covered most of it. I think I would just end with saying, make sure that you get an, get an attorney to help you and, and not any attorney, like an attorney who specializes, don't feel like you have to use your same attorney that you've used along the way. And I think that's an important, a really important point to make because you'll feel that you need to use that same attorney. What you need is an expert who represents a seller in a company transaction. That's what you need. You don't need a general corporate attorney. Your general corporate attorney will want to do this job for you because it will mean a payday for them, but they are not the right person in general. I'm sure there's attorneys who'll be like, I can do it, Brandon. Okay. But um, that's like saying, do you want your dentist to perform heart surgery because they have been to medical school? Or do you want the knee surgeon who fixes your ACL to replace a valve in your heart? No. Like, yes, they're both doctors. And they're, they both probably generally know a lot of common foundation stuff about cells and how the body works, but they have expertise. And, um, you know, you go to a specialist when that happens. I, I just end on that because I would, there's a lot of sad stories, like I said, and I wouldn't want any entrepreneur to wind up in a bad situation. 
Well, thank you so much for all the value. I've loved this episode, so I really appreciate all the information. Brandon White, where is the best place for people to find you? The best place is my website. You just go to Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-C, as in Charlie, white.com, brandoncwhite.com. And I'm going to put together a cheat sheet for your listeners, if that's okay. They can go to brandoncwhite.com forward slash Thomas Green, all lowercase, and we'll put together a due diligence and due diligence checklist that they can use to start to prepare if that's okay. Sounds brilliant. Thank you very much again. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much, Thomas. This has been awesome.